plant is faster than market for sure. And there's technologies that you can get a, a reasonable chicken product. Seafood's a little harder. It's a much smaller niche market, but that's growing as well. The challenge we see in the industry, though, is around the price point. So a lot of these products cost more than the real thing. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting-edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John. I'm your guest host. And I'm here today with Dr. Chris Oren. Innovation leader at Thai Union. Welcome to the show. Thank you, John. When did you fly into Taiwan? I got into Taiwan Wednesday afternoon. Oh, wow. It's kind of a whirlwind trip for you, huh? Exactly. What's been sort of the goals and what have you been looking forward to? I was here to meet with the ecosystem and give our perspective on how to really drive innovation and uh, work with startups as a corporate partner. And then looking at how you can really build that ecosystem so you have more innovation developing in the startup space, particularly in food tech. The very interesting kind of work that you're doing here. How did you get into this sort of position? And like, what was your background that brought you to Thai Union? So my background is food science. I uh, come from a family of food scientists, actually. Grew up in the States, came over to Thailand eight years ago. I was working with uh, Mipon Sugar. So they're the second largest sugar producer in the world, working on also bringing in new innovations there as well in the R&D space on how to utilize byproducts. So utilizing the sugarcane bagasse, turning it into other products, looking at biopesticides, uh, organic sugar processing. So how do you really take new technology and apply it into the business? And then joined Thai Union two years ago. So I'm running our food tech incubator and accelerator program, Space F. Uh, that program has been around for four years. We've supported over 60 startups through the program. 50% of those are from Thailand. The rest are from around the globe. Uh, and then we're using that to really bring new ideas and concepts into the company, help us learn, but also exposure to the trends so we know what's coming, so we don't get uh, surprised by trends that pop up. How would you describe Thai Union? Because it's... um. Seems to be kind of a very interesting company here. Thai Union is, we started off as a tuna processor, uh, and then we've grown, expanded with our shrimp production. So we're doing frozen shrimp, frozen ready to eat meals, and other seafood products. And we've expanded also into pet care. So those are the core businesses we're producing. We're an OEM manufacturer for many different companies. So most people have probably had our products. Uh, if you're in the U.S., it would have been Chicken of the Sea. You may know us for Red Lobster is another one. So you've seen us. You may not know it's Thai Union, but you've had our products. So it all started with shrimp, right? It all started with tuna. Oh, tuna. And then shrimp was maybe two years later. And then pet care was eight years after that. So we started back in 1977. Why pet care? It's kind of an interesting kind of divergence, right? Uh, so pet care uses a lot, traditionally it's used a lot of uh, fish meal. So how do we focus on wet pet food? So how do we utilize the byproducts as tuna overall is a very expensive fish. So you only use approximately 40% of the weight goes into a can of tuna. The rest is a leftover byproduct that we need to utilize and create value from. 
And then so the strategy would be more like you're trying to use the full part of the fish, right? Yes. What other parts of the of the strategy has Thai Union sort of kind of taken that approach for other for other products they've introduced? Um, so about eight years ago, we launched our Thai Union ingredients. So that's utilized started off by utilizing our fish oil. So we're doing uh, high, omega-3 oils that are extracted from the tuna. And then using that in those go into baby foods and other products. We've also been look, using the tuna bone. So we grind that up and turn it into a powder that can be used in supplements. That's higher bioavailability. So better for you than most other sources of calcium. And this year we're launching our protein hydrolysate plant and collagen peptide products. It's very interesting, right? Because maybe you have this byproduct. You're not quite sure. Do you have any idea at the outset, like what this can be used for? Or is it more like you got to like spray and pray kind of to find this application at the end user level? Or is this kind of like a consultation with like a network or like a distributor or something like that? Uh, so part of it, we look at we look at the overall scientific findings of the individual products we know that can come from those byproducts and then look at how we can scale that up, how we can purify it, make use of it as a relatively inexpensive processing method because the food industry has very small margins usually. So it's through consultation and then also just doing the R&D in-house and seeing how we can scale it up, particularly for that stuff, because it's very close to the core processes of Thai Union. And then, so what does your kind of day-to-day look like when you're not running around in Taiwan? Like, what what is that sort of responsibilities look like and kind of what sort of work is that do you do? So I'm with Space F. It's uh, working on connecting with the startups, also connecting them in with our business unit. So how do we make sure there's an actual collaboration happening that can move forward? So a lot of engagement management, so making sure expectations are matching on both sides. But then also we have other partners in the program. So Thai Bev, one of the largest beverage producers in Southeast Asia, uh, owns a lot of restaurant chains. And then we're also working with the government, National Innovation Agency of Thailand and Mahidol University. So navigating that of how each partner is feeling comfortable with working with the startups and making sure the startups are comfortable working with us. So I think it's that collaboration and takes a lot of work around making sure everything's meeting everyone's expectations. What are some kind of challenges that startups often kind of fall into that when they start working with like larger companies, like the ones that you represent and talk about? Uh, So when you're coming in as a startup, a lot of the times the startup wants to move fast. So they're very uh, active and want to do a lot of things. So usually you have to guide them on, okay, this is the best product you should be working on, the best area you should focus on to get one product out, get something solved. When they're working with the corporates, large companies are usually pretty slow to get everything aligned internally. But once we are aligned, you will have a lot of uh, resources and access to capabilities that a startup would never have. So market insights, how to scale up your technology, how to get into different markets, understanding regulatory. So in the food space, that's particularly challenging because every country has different regulatory regulations and requirements for those food products. 
So I think that's where that uh, expectation management is very important. These startups are like one or two people, or it's kind of like a small company. Like, where are they usually at when you try to meet with them and you find that they're ready to kind of work with like a larger company? So for the ones that are you are working with larger companies, they're ready to take their product and try it under real world conditions. They're usually four or five people upwards to 20 we've seen, uh, usually at the seed, the Series A, looking at how they can expand into new markets. And then how do you sort of like set their expectations? You, you mentioned that they really want to grow fast, right? And I've been on it from my own side where I try to, where we interact with like a very large company and they're just like, oh, we're not sure. And then suddenly you're like, oh, well, this one's dead in the water. How do you keep both sides, their expectations grounded and making sure that the wheel keeps spinning in terms of getting eventually to the finish line? So I think around that, you have to work on getting them working directly with people inside that business unit so they feel comfortable about understanding the day-to-day operations of the company and being relatively open. So for us, we're very open-minded with providing feedback on what the startups are doing and then asking them for feedback for us so we can improve as well because it's it's a learning experience on both sides and every startup is different. There are cases where we have to kick people out of the program just because expectations don't align, but that's not as common. Usually we've been able to sort out the startups relatively well on that expectation on both sides. And what are you guys looking for? Like what does kind of click and what are kind of the hallmarks of something that kind of you're like, ah, let's fast track this one. So when we're looking at them from at least from the Space F perspective, we're looking at the team. Are they opening to listening? Are they willing to try new things? How do, well do they engage with us and how well can we engage with them? You're also looking at the tech. So do they have underlying technology in their food process that is interesting, is protectable, is potentially scalable. Um, and then also around their strategies of going to market. How do they foresee that? Usually those need some tweaking from our experience, but uh, that's part of the relationship building is helping them grow. And then also how do they fit in with our business units? So on a practical level, like if they bring you the product, is it like a demo? Do they like what are they usually delivering? Like what do you want from them to deliver to help convey to you this like the value of their technology, their t- the product, and stuff like that? So for the accelerator, we're looking for they have a prototype, they have some samples we can work with, something tangible we can touch and put into the product. So a lot of the times it's an ingredient. So how do we take that ingredient and put it into one of our formulations of a product and see how it performs? For the incubator side, it's usually much earlier. They have a proposal. They may have a prototype, but they're looking at how to build that business case. That's where we help on the incubator as well. And when you receive this product, receive this information, what is your role inside as you try to go to and kind of champion, I suppose, this technology inside the company? Like, what are some of the challenges in getting that to work? Uh, So for uh, internally with our business units, uh, usually they don't have enough FTEs, the full-time employees working on this. So it comes back to R&D a lot. So we have an innovation team within R&D that focuses on rapid prototyping, rapid testing. So that's where these products will come in, work with the business unit 
on how do we create a prototype for a specific product. So how do we put a new ingredient into a plant-based seafood product? How do we put a new ingredient into a pet treat? Or how do we formulate a new pet treat? Uh, we've had a couple of startups come through that were doing insect proteins. So we were helping them on the formulation and regulatory around creating that, in, putting that insect protein into a pet treat to sell. Interesting. What was that like? It was an interesting experience. They launched their product in Thailand and had a fair bit of traction so far and looking at how they can expand globally uh, within Southeast Asia, really promoting the sustainability side of their products. So they're, they're utilizing um, food waste from grocery stores to feed the insects. The insects get ground up, put in the protein, turned in the protein, and then we're utilizing that, produce their pet treats. Was there any like ick factor that like the customers or anyone had to kind of deal or work around? As long as it's ground up in enough powder and you aren't seeing the individual, the legs of a cricket or <laughs> the wings, uh, you know, the things that would probably turn you off. It's usually not that bad. Okay. Yeah, I guess I see that if you get it down to that abstract level. Um, what are some of the interesting trends right now in the food industry that are kind of really grabbing? Your, like I just mentioned insects, right? But what are what are some of the others that kind of like gaining momentum in this industry? So we've heard a lot around plant-based. Currently with the economic crisis going on, the current troubles and inflation, we're seeing a lot of that uh, not growing as fast as they expected. So I think plant-based is an interesting area. There's a lot of work to do still. So the challenging part there is around cost, texture, and um, flavoring. So you need the product to be a reasonable price. And these are like plant-based meats, right? Yes. Um, another one area that's been growing a little further out is around cellular meat. So how do we make meat in a bioreactor at a large scale? So we've invested into a couple startups in that space. And this is a longer term project as we see just because there's a lot of technology hurdles that need to be overcome there. What are some of the kind of the major, are they more technical or economic hurdles? Both. <laughs> I mean, there's around the regulatory is another issue there just because it hasn't been regulated before. A lot of the technologies in that space around stem cells and isolating the mammalian cells or fish cells is how do you grow them at volume? How do you get the texture that you expect in a real meat product? How do you turn it into a steak and with the current technologies, that's very expensive. So no one's going to be willing to pay $300, $400 per for a steak when they can go buy the real thing off the shelf and it's a, a tenth of the price. Yeah. It's not exactly like uh, you can't exactly print them out or something, right? Like you have to grow, literally grow them. There are companies actually that are doing, that are growing the cells and then printing them. Really? Yeah. So that's a very, those are really neat technologies. And where that sits is around that, the printer head technology. How do you do high viscosity printing while not disturbing the cells, not breaking the cells? So there's a lot of challenges there that can be applied to other new businesses in the future. So what does the printing do? So like you grow the cells and then you print something onto them? So what you're doing there is you're growing the cells and taking that and printing it into, say, a steak format. So layering the fat and the, getting the right marbling, putting the muscle cells in the right order, and then having that go in, into a growth chamber and mature. Wow. It's like a weird integrated circuit kind of thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the 3D printing space 
in food. There's still a lot of questions of where it's applicable and how it's scalable, but I think that was a very interesting application of it. And then are there major differences in terms of like the cellular food? Is there differences between meat and seafood or are they largely the same technical challenges? There's slightly different challenges there. Fish cells grow relatively easier in these bioreactors. They require less oxygen, lower temperatures than the mammalian cells just because of the nature of the animal they came from. However, getting that right texture in the in the final product is still a challenge for all of them and then the price. So a lot of the cellular meats you're seeing coming on market now uh, they are usually a hybrid. So they have plant-based products mixed in with the animal cells. Are these plant-based products, you're talking about like impossible foods or something, right? Are they, you mentioned that there's some challenges have been, what work has been done in trying to get that some of that cost curve and that scalability down so far? So on the cellular meat space, the first challenge was around how to grow the cells and the media they grow in. So that was traditionally done uh, with fetal bovine serum. So we had to remove all the animal components and replace it with much less expensive uh, feed components for that. So that was a big one that a lot of companies are working on. A lot of them have achieved it, and now they're moving on to that next stage of how do you scale from a one liter reactor up to a 5,000 liter reactor just because the dynamics in that system are very different. How do you get the oxygen transmitting through the system? How do you make sure you're moving the cells enough so they're picking up the nutrients but not breaking? What about the contamination issues? Like what's kind of the risk there? Well, with these, I mean, if you're running these reactors and you have a 5,000 liter reactor where the price is a couple hundred thousand dollars of product, you can't have it go bad because you'd have to dump it. So sterility is very important. They're not supposed to be using antibiotics because then why not buy the real meat if we're trying to get away from all those uh, negative ingredients. So that will be a big challenge overall is how to keep it sterile at scale and make sure it's consistent. Do you think that there are economies of scale to this sort of thing where you're you maybe you can buy one massive vat and then you learn more and you can start scaling and kind of like in, sorry, the semiconductor space. <laughs> That's what we're hoping. We're seeing that we believe that there will be economies of scale. The question is the cost standpoint there associated with that on those bioreactors because they're very specialized. So at this point, there's not big solutions. There's, there's promising startups there with potential solutions in the space, but we haven't figured out who to bet on in that on who can really scale in a large volume. Are the, um, the startups in Taiwan, the Taiwanese food space, are they more leaning towards kind of the cellular growth or more towards kind of like plant-based? Like what approach are they trying to take with regards to this new food innovation here? I think in, in the Taiwan space, it's been mainly focusing on plant. Well, I would think there would be more cellular side just because of the biotech expertise you have in the country. But I guess that's also they realize that it's a longer term, long time to market. And then it depends on how much uh, venture capital is sitting around in the country as well. Is kind of, do you feel like plant right now is faster to market? Plant is faster to market for sure. And there's technologies that you can get a, a reasonable chicken product. Seafood's a little harder. It's a much smaller niche market, but that's growing as well. The challenge we see in the industry, though, is around the price point. 
So a lot of these products cost more than the real thing. Why is that? Is that because of subsidies from the mature ecosystem? like, Or is there something more fundamental here? Both sides. Some of the higher end technology that's being used, such as uh, high moisture extrusion, is cost a lot. And then the ingredients are not always relatively available at a reasonable price. But then you're also seeing... You're seeing a lot of subsidies on the meat side. The meat industry is very subsidized there from the feed all the way through. And there's a lot of protectionism from traditional industries like that, rightfully so. They've been around doing it the same way. They don't want to be disrupted. And where these plant-based products sit, they're not going to replace the industry. They're not going to replace all meat 100%. They have their spot in the industry where they'll be consumed once, twice, three times a week. You're really targeting the flexitarian, not the vegan. So vegan's like, why do I want a plant-based steak when I don't know what steak tastes like in the first place? What's the point when I can make a great meal that I know how to make already? What sort of like scenario do you feel is kind of be that niche for plant-based alternatives? Is it going to be like high-end restaurants or is it going to be like they just pick it up at the supermarket kind of thing? And the, the guy goes, ah, I think I'll have this plant-based version today. For exposure, I think you have to start off with the restaurants. People have to be exposed to the products to understand how it tastes because most people don't change how they go out and go shopping they, they're not going to pick up something they've never tried before usually it has to be somewhat related to what they're used to cooking they want to try it out at a restaurant usually it's the best way to expose them the challenge for getting it into the household is understanding how to cook it so they don't cook exactly as a regular piece of meat so you have to understand how you're supposed to cook it at home Otherwise, you'll do it the same way on the barbecue or in an oven, and it turns out really bad because you've overcooked it or you've cooked it improperly, and then you're not going to buy plant-based again. Do you envision like a plant-based alternative for like salmon or some of these other higher-end fishes kind of emerging? Because salmon, it is kind of expensive, right? You have maybe more margin. Did you get to see any startups that were offering like a plant-based alternative for those fishes? We've seen quite a few, actually, using different technologies in that space around whole-cut salmon or other fishes. The texture is still not right, usually, or there's still some improvements. Because the challenge when you're looking at whole-cut products like that is you compare it to the original. So what we've found is our plant-based products are best in applications. Dumplings, shumai, crab cakes, where places that you're not seeing a plant-based piece of shrimp and comparing it to the real piece of shrimp because that's that's just ex the wrong expectation the wrong expectations but that's what people do when they see something that looks like a salmon filet or a steak they're going to compare it to the real thing and then that's a big challenge how many years do, before you envision like a plant-based salmon alternative on a poke bowl if will it ever happen oh i think there are companies out there with it already happening so you're seeing it more in Europe and the U.S. So one company, Revo Seafood out of Austria, is actually doing 3D printed salmon fillets selling into grocery chains there in Europe. 3D printed? Yes. Plant-based? Yes. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> and then we've also seen a couple of gelling technologies and um, actually some that are growing the plant-based seafood for like a sashimi base type of product for poke bowls. Some are using traditional plant-based ingredients, making a gel and turning it into that structure of the sashimi. But then we're also seeing some that have done it with um, 
mycelium. So growing mushroom, using mushroom components to get that texture. Wow. I kind of see the gel approach. I don't know how a mushroom can taste like salmon on a pokeball or tuna on a pokeball. So the component of the mushroom, the mycelium, so it's the little roots, they usually don't have any flavor to them. So then you have to soak them to pick up the flavor, but they get that a nice flaky, like elongated kind of texture. So when you have a cooked piece of salmon, it flakes off when you're putting your fork into it. So you can get similar textures in that space. What do you consider to be like a success case, like a success scenario for like one of these kind of plant-based or cell growth-based alternative meats? Like what does the success look like in your eyes? Uh, To me, to be truly successful, they'll have to be at price parity with the real meat they're replacing or even below that. And we're starting to see some of that emerging now with some products. But then the texture and taste, you want the people to come back. So a lot of times these products, you'll see people, they go out for the Instagram photo. They'll try it out, get the pictures in, say they tried it, but then you don't see them coming back. And that's where you want the repeat customer. You think it's like a price can compensate for that? Like, let's say you scale up like the poke salmon cube gel to like a third of the price. Do you think the customer comes back even if despite the taste might not have been perfect and the texture might not be perfect? They could. I think. I guess it comes back to how the overall poke bowl is, right? I mean, if you're just basing it off of the texture and taste of that sashimi, you probably wouldn't buy it again if it's not meeting your expectations. Yeah, that's the other challenge in the space is you've seen a lot of subpar products come on the market. So people have been turned off by trying some of this stuff. We need some really good products that come out at price parity or below and have a great taste. So you have these consumers coming back. Uh, One example of the company we've been working with out of SpaceF, uh, Lipid. Taiwanese company. Oh, we spoke with them. Yeah. So they, they've they been doing quite well with their bacon replacement. And that's they found a great niche in the overall industry of how do you make a healthier bacon? Everyone loves bacon. So you need to make it healthier. And they're succeeding in that. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. When I spoke with them on this podcast, they talked a lot about kind of the uh, production and how we're doing production in Taiwan really gave them a cost advantage over the competitors like for like impossibles, like set in like Redwood City, right? And I've lived in Redwood City. It's like one of the most expensive cities out there. It's kind of interesting just to see the the cost differential between one and the other. You know, do you feel like Thai Union right now has a kind of decision or has made a decision as required plant or cellular base so far, or they're trying to keep their options open? So we do do produce plant based. So we have made this decision to support the industry. Like everyone else, we got pulled into the hype in the last couple of years, but now we're we are there for the long term. We recognize that it is coming and we want to be involved. And we've had good success in Thailand with our products, our OMG Meats brand locally. Uh, but we do a lot of OEM manufacturing for overseas white label companies. So grocery chains that want to have their own branded product in the stores, we can produce for them chicken or seafood. We also have just recently launched our tuna pouches under the John West brand. So we have plant-based tuna in the Netherlands under John West. So we're looking at how we can make sure we're getting into that marketplace and having a great product there. You mentioned Lipid just now. Like, Were there other any other kind of really interesting startups in this food tech space from Taiwan that um, you can kind of 
let our viewers know about? In the plant-based, I haven't seen as much, but that means I need to explore the, the ecosystem more. Uh, there are some interesting ingredients in the biotech side around health and nutrition, so probiotic-based products and looking at how to leverage uh, different technologies, how to do use plants to produce compounds. So how to produce healthy compounds from rare plants such as snowflower and some of the like rose oils. So how do you produce those high-end products by precision fermentation? So you're using the plant to grow it and then you process it from there or you, you're using the plant and fermenting it to create the byproduct? So they are growing the plants in a bioreactor and then the plant cells are secreting out the compounds. So they're doing it for a continuous fermentation process where they can purify those compounds as they're secreted out, which makes it much cheaper than having to extract it from the plant material itself because that, the purification steps is much more expensive. Uh, so you lose some cost on the growing. I guess it's way cheaper to just grow the thing, but the processing is where... I guess the you'll, you'll save money on that part. And Taiwan's done some interesting work here. And then is anyone in Taiwan doing the cell growth? You mentioned not many, but did you see anyone who's come bring it up? And not on this trip, but I presume there's someone out there in the universities trying to spin out cellular meat work and hopefully we get to meet them on the next trip. Well, really appreciate the time. Is there anything else that you want our listeners, many of which are entrepreneurs, is there anything that you would want to let them know as to how to prepare or how to kind of catch your attention or get traction? I think for us, we just want the startups to reach out if they think they're a good fit. If we can't help them, we always like to point them in the right direction and give them support because we understand it's a very difficult space to get growing and develop your startups and get traction. So we can always provide some guidance on who to partner with or who to talk to in the space, particularly in Southeast Asia. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, John. 